You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported, Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon. Reporting for WFHB, this is Cade Young. And I'm Lucinda Lonick. This is the WFHB Local News for Thursday, January 19th, 2023. Later in the program, the Indiana Supreme Court heard arguments on the state's GOP-backed abortion ban earlier this afternoon. More in your Statehouse Roundup. Also coming up in the next half hour, we have Civic Conversations, a podcast collaboration between the WFHB Local News and the League of Women Voters of Bloomington and Monroe County. But first, your State House Roundup. Good afternoon, this is your State House Roundup. I'm Cade Young. The Indiana Supreme Court heard arguments on the state's GOP-backed abortion ban earlier this afternoon. The state's highest judicial body listened to the two opposing sides on whether the abortion ban violates privacy protections. Right now, abortions are currently allowed in the state after a county judge blocked the law from being enforced last fall. Indiana became the first state to ban abortion after the U.S. Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade last year. Attorney for the appellant, Thomas Fisher, provided arguments on behalf of the state, saying he believes the abortion ban should remain intact. He said that ruling in favor of Planned Parenthood would require a rewrite of the state constitution. Science tells us that abortion terminates the existence of a distinct living human being with unique DNA and the capacity to direct its own development. Ethics tells us not to end innocent human life. Roe and Casey removed the power to protect the unborn, but after 50 years of federal judicial micromanagement, Dobbs returned the abortion issue to the states, resulting in the enactment of Senate Bill 1, which prohibits abortion except in cases of rape and incest with a serious health risk to the mother or where there is a lethal fetal anomaly. Still, abortion providers seek to strip the right to protect the unborn from Hoosier voters once again, with no greater warrant than existed under federal law. They urge the court to recognize a novel, unwritten, historically counterindicated right to abortion under Article I, Section 1 of the Indiana Constitution. But first, abortion providers have no standing to assert the rights of the putative rights of hypothetical patients. Article I, Section 1 affords no judicially enforceable rights in any event. And third, whatever else liberty might mean under Article I, Section 1, it does not mean abortion, which was prohibited uh, before, during, and again, immediately after the period of constitutional adoption. So ruling for Planned Parenthood would flout many precedents and legal rules with untold consequences. Ruling for the state would merely return to where things stood before Roe. Essentially, Planned Parenthood invites the court to amend the Constitution and not to search for the law. The trial court accepted that invitation. This court should reject it. I welcome the court's questions. Legal Director for the American Civil Liberties Union of Indiana, Ken Falk, made an argument against the ban as the attorney for Appalee. 
Falk said Indiana women would suffer if the ban were to remain in effect. Describing SB1 as a total ban on virtually all abortions, while certainly accurate, sanitizes the harm that it will cause. It prohibits healthcare providers from supplying necessary care to protect the physical and mental health of all Hoosier women. It will severely injure women and girls and will injure the plaintiffs, giving them standing. The trial court correctly found that plaintiffs were likely to succeed on their claims that Article 1, Section 1 creates judicially enforceable rights. This gives the words of the provision meaning, as required by this court's constitutional analysis, and has been the holding of numerous cases from this court and comports with the natural rights philosophy upon which our Constitution is based. Liberty has meaning, and its core value is the right to manage the most private aspects of our lives free from unwarranted government interference. This includes the right of a woman to reproductive control. Of course, the founders in 1851 were not attempting to advance women's rights and were not thinking about reproductive issues. Although it's worth noting that at the time of our first constitution and a common law, abortion was not unlawful prior to quickening. And as the court has noted, even in 1851, it was not unlawful to preserve the life of the woman. But our constitutional analysis is not frozen in time, protecting only what was within the experience of the founders in 1851. We look to the essential values which animate constitutional provisions, and we must apply those values to today's circumstances. The circumstances necessarily evolve and change over the stream of time, and given the safety of abortion and the fact that it's been part of the life of Hoosiers, Hoosier women particularly, for almost 50 years, the trial court properly found, consistent with decisions from some of our sister states, that plaintiffs were likely to be able to demonstrate that the statute is an unwarranted, unconstitutional. Law professor at Indiana University, Dr. For Jennifer Ann Drobak, spoke with the WFHB correspondent Gracie Roman, offering analysis on the arguments the ACLU made in its two lawsuits. From the 14th Amendment Equal Protection Clause in the United States Constitution, arguing that men have unfettered access to appropriate medical care and women do not, that men have a right to bodily autonomy, and now women of childbearing years do not. So this is an equal protection argument. It's also, they would argue, a bodily autonomy issue, that you just, you have a right to bodily autonomy, and SB1 ignores that. They've also made an argument for a First Amendment argument, a freedom of religion argument. That is, Indiana, in its SB1, defined human life as beginning at fertilization. And not all religions, that's a very Christian perspective, particularly Catholic. Not all religions, I mean, Muslims do not define life. They they define human life at live birth. Personhood begins with live birth. In in the Jewish tradition, live birth. And in some Mm -hmm. conservative Jewish traditions, It's with the naming ceremony at 120 days after birth. According to the Associated Press, the five-member Supreme Court, who were all appointed by Republican governors, does not have a deadline for releasing a decision. The AP reports it could take weeks, if not longer, to arrive at a decision. That's all for your State House Roundup. For WFHB, I'm Lucinda Larnock.
Yesterday morning, the Bloomington Fire Department responded to a fire at 519 North Lincoln, a four-story apartment just off of East 10th Street. According to Battalion Chief Tanya Daffron, the fire formed in the attic of the four-story apartment building. Daffron said that the investigation as to what caused the fire is still ongoing. The fire department received calls about the fire at 10.31 a.m. and responded within three minutes, according to a statement found on their Facebook page. Around 3 p.m., firefighters were still on the scene, but Daffron shared that things were winding down. There were not any reports of residents being injured. However, according to Daffron, there were two firefighters who had to be taken to the hospital in an ambulance. Daffron also said that although animal control was called to the scene, there still might be some pets on the loose and asked residents in the area to keep an eye out for any pets that seemed to be misplaced. On January 11th, the Bloomington City Council heard a report from the Director of Housing and Neighborhood Development, John Zodi, who wanted to inform the council and the public about upcoming American Rescue Plan Act funds from the U.S. Housing and Urban Development Program. Just a reminder, the city is going to receive um, about $2 million in rescue plan uh, funds through the Home Investment Partnership Program, which is one of the affordable housing programs that is allocated to the city of Bloomington and the HAND uh, department. Um, the funds have to be targeted for use to serve four qualifying populations as defined by our regulations in the federal government. And um, all of these populations uh, are in the um, realm of homelessness. Um, number one, uh, a person that would be considered uh, homeless by a traditional definition. The actual definitions of all of these are quite lengthy uh, in regulation, but what you might consider uh, traditionally someone who would be homeless. At risk of homelessness really uh, refers to someone uh, from a financial perspective, primarily uh, who has a risk of housing insecurity. Um, number three, fleeing or attempting to flee domestic or dating violence, sexual assault, stalking or human trafficking. And number four, other populations requiring service or housing assistance to prevent homelessness. So uh, someone that may have a substance abuse disorder, someone that may have other uh, risk factors. Uh, veterans are, uh, would be in this group, uh, for instance. Um, or a person with a disability, perhaps. So the funds have to be used to serve those four qualifying populations. We um, have a number of uses for the funds. Uh, supportive services, which is a huge range of activity uh, that we've been uh, getting input on. Nonprofit operation and capacity building, uh, rental housing development, acquisition and development of non-congregate shelter. So that shelter, which is um, uh, where uh, clients maybe um, uh, sleeping in separate rooms or using separate bathrooms, as opposed to congregate shelter where you may find uh, folks being in the same room or the same restroom. This does have a, um, a COVID tie because of the rescue plan, so that's where the, COVID, the congregate versus non-congregate shelter concept comes in. Uh, Tenant-based rental assistance, which is an existing program that we have, um, uh, that we work with the Bloomington Housing Authority on, which uh, provides uh, some rental assistance to certain income qualifying uh, clients. And then um, with those uses, we've been reaching out to folks. There's a prescribed list of required outreach, but we've been uh, doing a little more than that. We're, uh, we've done about uh, two dozen meetings so far. We'll be doing more this month uh, to get input and solicit feedback from those stakeholders in the community uh, that, that we all know and some we don't know. 
Next, the council discussed a resolution in response to the Monroe County Board of Commissioners about the Monroe County Convention Centre. Monroe County Commissioner Julie Thomas spoke to the council. She explained that although the agreement will not be legally binding, it is a litmus test for the commissioners to know where the council stands on the convention centre. Again, we are opposed to the 501c3 measure that the mayor has put forward. It removes all county input in the process. Please remember one, first, that the county council provided the food and beverage tax to fund this project based on the administration's promise of city-county cooperation. And remember, please, number two, the convention center has been managed uh, through Monroe County government for decades very successfully. I ask respectfully, please consider your vote, the message you want to send to the state legislature as they begin to debate Senate Bill 37 regarding food and beverage taxes. What do you want county government to learn about your interests? And lastly, what message do you want to send to the community? Council member Steve Volan asked Thomas about whether or not the commissioners still support the food and beverage tax in the future. Thomas said that she supports the food and Commissioner Lee Jones, who attended over Zoom, agreed that they will still need the food and beverage tax for the convention centre if the plan continues to move forward. Oh, that's a really good question. Um, I believe um, I can only speak for myself. Um, and I will say that if um, we are going to move forward with the CIB in cooperation with um, city government, that we need the food and beverage tax, so I would support it. And I, I'm not sure if that directly answers your question or not. Commissioner Susan Sandberg asked Thomas if the food and beverage tax being eliminated by the General Assembly in future legislation is a concern of theirs. Thomas responded, well, I certainly can't speak for the General Assembly, um, but I can say that um, without the um, support of the administration and um, as we discussed today um, in, in our administrative meeting, um, even with the support of um, the city administration, we will have to do something to demonstrate to um, the General Assembly that we're serious about using the food and beverage tax. And if you think about it, one of the very first things that would have to happen is an agreement on the CIB structure. Everything we do, you will need to have a veto-proof vote at this point. And um, I'm sure you all appreciate the gravity of that. Um, so the CIB structure, a bond, how are we going to get a bond passed? quickly, um, that would that is going to fall into the city's purview. Um, and so there's a lot of work that will have to be done. Um, it would be nice to know what they intend to do and where most, most folks are um, in terms of that, but I don't know that. Sorry to say. Commissioner Ron Smith asked the new Deputy Mayor, Mary Catherine Carmichael, why the city wants to have control over the convention centre. Carmichael responded, saying that the city does not want to control the project. However, they want to get it done in a timely matter, and they think it will be faster if they don't have to come to joint agreements. Why is it so important for, this, for the city to have the control of that 
entity. So you whichever know, whichever way it goes, why is that so important? Because I I don't really understand that very well. I, I'm not sure how you define control. We don't have any interest in managing that facility. We know that we feel like the the way it's set up now is brilliant and working very well for the community. I think our main interest is getting it built quickly, getting it built well, getting it built to a high standard, um, and taking advantage of uh, the expertise we have in big projects to get it done. So um, we don't, we aren't trying to control the process long term. Our interest is just getting that asset established for this community in a timely fashion. Does, and does... we fear that um, you know, the best predictor of future behavior is past behavior, and we've had some problems working together. So we feel like if we have to rely uh, on every single decision to be made jointly, that's going to slow things down and be really problematic. Um, again, we don't hope to control it long term. We're happy to say, hey, yeah, you manage it. This is, this is just an asset that our community needs, and we want to see that happen. The council voted to override the mayor's previous veto on the Monroe County Commissioner's ordinance establishing a capital improvement board. The resolution passed with a vote of eight to one, the council member Kate Rosenbarger dissenting. The next Bloomington City Council meeting will be held on January 18th. In today's feature report, we feature an episode of Civic Conversations, a podcast collaboration between the WFHB Local News and the League of Women Voters of Bloomington and Monroe County. In this segment, host Jim Allison talked to Steve Hennefield about the impact on a community when local news sources die out. We turn to Civic Conversations on the WFHB Local News. You're listening to Civic Conversations, a podcast collaboration between the League of Women Voters, Bloomington, Monroe County, and this station, WFHB. I'm Jim Allison, your host, and Becky Hill is our producer. We're pleased to say that you can find Civic Conversations each month on WFHB at 91.3 and 98.1 FM. Today, we're pleased to welcome Steve Hennefeld. Steve is a former longtime reporter for the Bloomington Herald Times newspaper. And today he's here to talk with us about the impact of losing local news sources. Welcome, Steve. Uh, why don't we start? Why don't we start with an agreement about a, a kind of a philosophy? Uh, and this would be in our representative form of government, I think we can agree on this. Both our representatives and the people who elect those representatives must be well and truly informed about the vital issues of the day. And I think that's an ironclad imperative. And once upon a time, local newspapers were a widespread source of that information. But since 2005, we lost over 2,500 of those, which is about 25% of them. And we want to know today, how did this happen and what difference has it made? And first off, what, if any, is the tangible, the typical tangible impact when a community does lose a local news source? Do we have hard data on this? What do you say? Yeah, there, there definitely are impacts when that happens. And, and it's, you know, the story's been told often that changes in technology, the rise of the internet and, and so on, uh, has kind of killed off or is killing off print newspapers and legacy news sources. 
And when we lose local news, that's the real concern here. Uh, there's research that shows that there's increased polarization within our communities and within our country. And uh, there are uh, there's less effective, less accountable local government. Taxes are more likely to be higher. There's likely to be more pollution. There's likely to be more corruption in government uh, because there isn't that uh, that local um, accountability or that local oversight that comes from the public knowing what's going on. Okay, let, let's talk a bit about digital news sources. What impact specifically do you think digital news sources have had on the local news media? So I think that uh, pretty much all news is becoming or on its way to becoming digital news. Uh, newspapers, TV stations, uh, everyone has to fi is figuring out that that's the way people are going to people are going to get their information, their news online. Um, and the idea of a, a printed newspaper that lands on your doorstep every morning uh, may last for a few more years, but it won't last for a whole lot more years. Uh, people have gotten used to the idea of reading, uh, getting information on their screens, one way or another. Uh, so that's that's what what that's happening. And uh, newspapers, in particular, have been sort of slow to adjust to that and figure out how to adjust to it uh, financially, in particular. Um, meanwhile, there are other entities that have come in, uh, digital first or digital only, news outlets that are supplementing or complementing what. Uh, traditional news sources are, are doing. Some of them do, are doing a really good job of it. Um, in the state of Indiana, there's a new Indiana Capital Chronicle that covers the state house, does it very, very well, uh, foundation supported and, and donor supported, Chalk Beat, which covers education. Um, but the one issue with those is that uh, they tend to be in more uh, urban and affluent areas and focus on niche topics that are interesting to uh, maybe more engaged uh, readers or viewers. And uh, the communities that are left behind are the communities that are struggling anyway with things like job loss, poverty, and so on. Uh, they are not getting those alternatives, not as likely to be served by those alternatives. In the meantime, they're losing their local news sources, their local newspapers, and that sort of thing. Let's talk a little bit about ethics, journalistic ethics. Uh, many newspapers have been swallowed up, speaking of Gannett, by corporate news giants like Gannett, which, of course, itself is owned by a bigger fund yet. And I'd like to know what you think about the typical effect, if there isn't any typical effect, on journalist ethics of all this kind of stuff. So when I think of journalistic ethics, I think of uh, principles that uh, are put, put forward by the Society of Professional Journalism. Uh, side of professional journalists, excuse me, that, that um, include to, to report and tell the truth, to act independently, to minimize harm, and to be accountable. And the one that suffers is reporting and telling the truth. I think journalists are as committed to ethics and as committed to the truth and committed to independence uh, as ever, and possibly more so. I think in some ways, uh, in, one, in one way in which that's the case is that journalists are more committed to telling the diversity of a community stories today than 
they once were. Back when I was reporting, uh, there was much more of a bias that we were a kind of white male society um, and that those were the stories that ended up being told. And that's much less the case now. So I think that's improved. But I think the fact that there are so, uh, so much fewer, so many fewer journalists working in local news, telling local news stories, means that there's just a lot of the entire full story of the community that doesn't get told because there just aren't enough people to tell it. Amen. Okay, but let's talk about alternatives to the established newspapers. Uh, how could a community finance, in your opinion, how could it finance the development of its own local news sources if it decided to do that? I think a lot of people are are giving this a lot of thought. There are journalism think tanks and schools of journalism, schools of media studies that where researchers are really, uh, you know, bringing people together to talk about what may be working in some places and what um, what might be some promising practices. Uh, I think you, it's possible to think of large scale uh, kind of uh, philanthropic donor support. Uh, making a difference. Uh, uh, some of the entities like uh, Indiana Capital Chronicle, it covers the state house, Chalkbeat that covers education in Indiana and other other states um, have have gotten the model. That's what Dave Askins does with B Square. Uh, and in a sense, that's what WFIU is doing uh, with their fund drives. Um, so I, I think that it's possible to think about uh, also maybe kind of pulling together some of the existing talent and existing experimentation and entrepreneurship that's taking place and trying to think if there's a, a way of like joining those on a, a common platform. Um, but but it's a it's a it's a real challenge and I, I I don't think anybody's really found the answer. Indeed. Let's go back to politics just a bit. When a community loses a local news source, what do you think is the impact on local government, for example, and in general, the local political scene? Well, um, there's been studies that have shown increased polarization uh, with the loss of, of news sources. Uh, there has has been uh, studies that have shown fewer people to come forward to run for office. Uh, you won't have the same level of people stepping up to be candidates for school board, for city council, that sort of thing, um, which, you know, really affects the, the level and the, the quality and effectiveness of government. If you have fewer choices and less, less participation, um, if there have been, there's evidence of more corruption in government, if there's no one really watching, no one attending all the meetings, no one showing up, and uh, there is clear evidence that uh, costs of borrowing for local government, which you don't think about a lot, but interest rates on bonds are higher when there's not local news coverage. Uh, when people aren't watching, um, it's, it's not ne even necessarily a matter of, of corruption or malfeasance, but just there's not the same incentive to do a good job if you don't know that your neighbors are out there watching or reading about what you're doing. So I think it really does make a, make a big difference. Okay. Finally, let's talk a little bit about disinformation and misinformation. Do you think that those two evils are on the rise, perhaps, because of the loss of local news sources? I think there's no question about that. I think that uh, that people are hungry for stories, and they're hungry for stories that help them make sense of 
the world that they live in, and this vast array of confusing information that's out there. And so people are eager for, for folks who will tie things together and give them that kind of aha moment where they think that, yeah, oh, now I understand all this confusing stuff. And if they're not getting uh, responsible, reliable, professional, and ethical versions of that told by people whose job it is, whose profession it is to put that information together, uh, that really leaves the door open for uh, more misinformation, more disinformation, more people who have agendas to drive by uh, confusing people and creating chaos. And I think we see an awful lot of that. All right. Steve Hinefeld, thank you so much for talking about this important topic with us today. And to our listening audience, thank you very much for listening to us on Civic Conversations. This is Jim Allison of the League of Women Voters, Bloomington, Monroe County. The League is a nonpartisan, grassroots, citizen-led organization that has been fighting since 1922, sorry, since 1920, to improve our government and engage all citizens in the decisions that impact their lives. And next month, we hope you can join us when we talk to League of Women Voters member and IU librarian Kate Cruikshank on the 26th Amendment of the, of the U.S. Constitution. And that's the amendment that has to do with the 18-year-old vote.